and welcome to the Eastgate Project Podcast. My name is Ed Ng. You may or may not have noticed, but I've slowed down in writing and publishing these episodes. A big part of it is that rhythm and balance is important to me, and so even though I want to keep on giving and exploring in this way, I also need to keep in mind that my paid work is being a therapist, and I owe my clients my energy, my time, and my headspace. Publishing tons of material here is fun for me, and hopefully helpful for you, but I need to be careful of how much time and energy I can put into it. And another very significant reason why I haven't published as many episodes lately is because in March 2021, eight people were shot, seven of them fatally, in Atlanta, Georgia. It was then that the tension I've been holding for the past year of rising anti-Asian racism around the world sort of broke inside me, and I got angry, and my anger started to speak louder than my fear. So if you've been following the Eastgate Project on Instagram, you'll know that I've been busy writing emails or calling people to account and being more immersed in the anti-racist movement overall. As such, I've been experiencing changes in my voice. No, not my speaking voice, but the voice I use to communicate with you either through writing or podcasting. I've become more convinced that the object of what I'm doing here is to partly critique, yes, and man, does that feel good sometimes. But I also wanted here to do more than just needle the powers that be. This episode is meant to be a follow-up to my last one on the Chinese-Canadian Christian life. Admittedly, I was feeling a little salty, so my cynicism probably turned a few people off. Not that I've heard anything from anyone, but on further reflection, it's easy to be a hater. What's not so easy is not just to be a lover, but a builder. So I left off the last episode with a thought that something in the way many of us have unconsciously adopted the majority cultural narrative needs to change. I think I showed that the journey that so many of us started out on wasn't so much a self-determined, I'm going this way sort of thing, but that there are a ton of forces that shape our decisions to do and be certain things. So even after the point that we start deciding between college majors or jobs, the reality is that the wide open meadow we think we're skipping through with infinite choices of directions is actually more like a railroad. Sure, you can change tracks, but you'll have to wait for the right time and place, and even then, the destinations are limited in number. This is a bit of a divergence, but I want to push back against people saying, you can be anything you want. No, you can't. You can be a lot of things in life, but we are all bound in some way by a complex mix of genetics, sociology, opportunity, and as I get older, what feels more and more like blind, dumb luck. I know as a Christian, I'm not supposed to say luck, but that's what it feels like sometimes when people are at the right place and right time for things to go their way, or when the reverse happens and bad luck, so to speak, occurs. We are just at the wrong place, at the wrong time, for things to go badly. This is all to say that, no, you can't be anything you want to be. I know why people keep saying that, though. It's because they want to believe that their choices for self-determination will make a difference. 
and saying that you can be anything you want is a corrective against power systems that discourage us from trying to develop the best of our abilities. But even as much as I would have loved to have been an NBA player earlier in my life, the truth is, I'm short, I'm not very fast, and I can't jump very high. Not to mention that I don't have the best ball handling or shooting skills. If I applied myself, I'd probably get better in measurable ways in all those areas, but there's going to be a limit to what my body and mind can do. And even then, if you were a major Division I program, would you be looking at a Chinese-Canadian guy from the suburbs of Vancouver? So no, just deciding to do something doesn't mean that you can do it. But against what I just said, our choices actually do make a difference. Of course they do. But they aren't necessarily the most important factor in how our lives will go. They set our intentions for how we hope things will work out, but all of us have had to learn how to adapt when they don't. And if you've never really experienced failure in your life, you're either terribly ignorant of yourself or you're anxious about when your turn to fail will come. So the question before us today is, if what you say is right and these cultural narratives that shape our lives are so strong, how can I change the story that's being laid out for me? A lot of the younger clients I see openly struggle with this question. It's not because those of us who are older have it all figured out, but I think for the most part, people my age just sort of go with what they've decided and try not to think about what might have been. So you do the thing. You go to school, get your degree, and get your job. And then you do the thing that people with degrees and jobs do. And then you sort of hang in there, counting your money and your days until retirement. But it seems like a lot of the anxiety younger people face is that they look ahead at what's being mapped out for them, and they're not sure they want to join in. After all, doing as the boomers and Gen Xers like me did doesn't seem to have led to any greater levels of contentment or happiness. So why should they go into a practical university major that leads to a lucrative but soul-destroying career? Sometimes I get asked what kinds of clients I see, and what has been the case for the last few years is that lawyers are showing up more frequently. By all accounts, these are intelligent and successful people who did the right thing and get paid very, fairly well for their services, but that doesn't mean that they like what they do. Very often, you dig under the substance use, the anxiety, the depression, and you'll find very significant issues to do with meaning of life. But if doing the culturally acceptable thing doesn't lead to contentment or happiness, what are the alternatives? What about responding to the pressures of the people around us? In psychology and sociology, we loosely categorize people groups and traditions on an independent and interdependent axis. Independence is relatively synonymous with individualism in that people from these traditions or cultures conceive of themselves as free agents who will prioritize their own personal and individual well-being above that of others. By contrast, people from interdependent cultures will tend to prioritize the well-being of others, especially their family and friends, above their own. And though this makes people from independent cultures sound selfish and interdependent cultures selfless, there are always trade-offs in belonging to either. People who look at things from an independent perspective might struggle with incredible discouragement when their attempts to define themselves over against others fails. They might think, 
Did I make a wrong assessment of my capabilities? And people holding an interdependent view might struggle with significant doubt and imposter syndrome when they find themselves being asked to get ahead in the world. They might ask, who am I to be thought of as expert or skilled? In the case of children of immigrants coming from interdependent cultures, there is an extra layer of respecting family wishes. And what so many of my clients struggle with when they tell me they have relational problems with their family is that a Western independent mindset tends to clash with an interdependent perspective that says you should do the things that support the community instead of doing the things that define yourself over and against the community. In other words, an essential struggle for a lot of people whose parents are not from the West is how they might live in peace with the expectations placed upon them by their families while still honoring their desire for self-determination. And even more, in the case that you're a sincere Christian, you might also be asking yourself, how can I live my life so it speaks of more than just winning the game? If you're not a Christian or have no experience of church culture, this is going to be a little foreign to you. But for those of us who grew up going to church, most of us have had steady diets of ideas that say things like the world and its desires pass away and the love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. When you combine these with the guilt complexes that churches tend to put on people's backs, you can end up with a fear that you may be living well, but that you may be also missing the mark. That somehow you're not doing what Jesus said you should do. This is a source of tremendous insecurity for every Christian I know. That they're doing everything they can to be a so-called good Christian, but that in the end, they're going to be left out in the cold. Now, the instinct of most sincere people is to do more to ensure their salvation. This is our instinct because this is how we are raised in almost every culture on earth. Getting bad grades? Study harder. Want that promotion? Work harder. Want to make sure you get into heaven? Give all you got. And Jesus just might say, Thanks for the billion dollars. I really needed that. You're in, buddy. And churches, unsurprisingly, find ways for people to do more. Get involved in Sunday morning stuff like setting up the AV or welcoming people at the door. Or maybe indulge your performance side by playing music. Or indulge your martyr complex by going on short-term mission trips, which, by the way, I've grown to dislike even more in recent years. Churches do this not necessarily because they're all cynical institutions that exploit people's good intentions, but because they, like us, are beholden to the story that progress is made through hard work, sacrifice, and sheer determination. Not, we only whisper to ourselves, because of the favor of a God who loves us. So how, in the end, do we meaningfully decide the steps we need to take to shift the narrative we are writing about ourselves? The truth is, making meaningful changes to your life is very often the object of therapy. Most people I meet with have some idea of changes they'd like to make, but very often, lack of opportunity and lack of courage go hand in hand in keeping people in the same place. For example, you may want to go back to school to get your degree or upgrade your education, but maybe you don't have the money or the time, or maybe you're feeling too old and out of it. But in the interest of clarity, it may help for me to lay down a framework for changing narrative outcomes. The first is to figure out the various cultural influences on your life. 
For most of us, our family wishes have a huge impact on what we decide to do, especially in our younger years. And culture, as an ethno-cultural construct, is usually transmitted through our family affiliations. But what of other cultures? What of the particular culture of your school, or your church, or your friends group? What about the influence that a booming economy in one sector might have? And what are the cultural idols of success that you pray to? What about the pressure that being gifted or privileged has on your perceptions of what to do with these? This is a big first step, and worth taking some time to flesh out. When I mention culture, our minds tend to leap first to ethnicity. But ethnicity is only one of the conditions that produce culture, which I loosely define as the acts of a certain people group that help define that group. So, if I'm here examining Asian-Canadian Christian culture, I might say that this is a particularly complex culture because of the intersections of ideas about who has authority. Confucian tradition tends to say that our teachers and elders are worthy of respect. But being raised in the West with Western-trained teachers and non-Asian friends means that many of us experience an internal split with regards to who we should listen to. Now, respect may not be the same thing as deference, but the way that respect is often shown in Asian churches is deference for pastors who do most of the teaching. And as many Asian cultures also tend towards patriarchalism, the fact that the vast majority of pastors are men produces an intersection between patriarchalism and deference to position. So when we're talking about cultural influences, pastors in majority Asian churches have an enormous amount of influence. Perhaps not power, as westernized people tend to question hierarchicalism, but very often you can see the personality of the pastor attracting certain kinds of people to their congregations. And as congregations get together, they reinforce these kinds of personality characteristics over and over again through biased representation of what the ideal congregant looks like. For example, take the music teams in most churches. They're generally full of attractive and or youngish people. I've tended to note that the cooler a church is, the more attractive and young the music teams tend to be. And then, Say that the pastor who comes up to preach is also youngish and attractive, or at least uses language or harps on themes that identifies them as cool or woke. And you then are building a representation of an ideal that may leave many out in the cold. So when that pastor talks about his wife and family, the report from single people is how alienating this can be. Or when the music team launches into an extended bridge or there's a guitar solo for you non-churchgoers, yeah, that's a thing, people who grew up in other traditions might have no idea what to do at these times. And that happens to be me. I kind of hate it when the band plays and we in the pews are sort of left to hang. It's tremendously awkward for me. But I do realize that some people like to feel the moment and feel it a little more keenly. And so some people raise their hands and sway sort of how they would at a concert. Now, as a psychologist and a student of human behavior, I have some thoughts about this. But perhaps this would be for another time. Let's get back to this representation of ideals. How does this relate to narrative decisions in your life? Well, the more you invest in these idealized images as something to aim at, 
the more you may try to structure your life to look like what you see. For example, you may want to get married younger and have children before a certain age, which isn't a mistake in itself. But every day, I see people who have rushed into marriage and then walk out of them after they've achieved everything they were supposed to when they married their supposed best friend. And I have to say, it seems that a lot of marriages break down because they haven't taken the time early in the relationship to examine whether this is a good fit after all. I'm not saying that every relationship you have when you're young is doomed, but when you're single for a while and marry when you're older, you have the time and space to think about who you are and what you want, and you develop a better understanding of what your negotiables really are and what you can really live without. I know I'm a lot better for not having married my first girlfriend, and I'm willing to bet a bunch of you out there are also in the same boat. I'm talking about how a lot of us who married our first girlfriend or boyfriend are maybe still on that railroad narrative, and so we'll choose our partners based on the things that you're supposed to choose. Good looking? Yep. Same religion? Yep. Same ethnicity? Yep. Potential future earnings? Yep. Never mind that there is a tremendous amount of variation in each of these, as long as that person checks the boxes we've been culturally conditioned to prize, a lot of other things go out the window. Like, do we actually like spending time with that person? Do we have similar ideas of how to raise children? Can we actually be honest with each other about how we're feeling and what we're going through? But what about our peer group? What if the way that the people we're raised with also reinforce the representation of an ideal life? I know that I experienced a lot of jealousy for my friends when they got married before I did. I mean, everything just seemed perfect for them. They had supportive families. They had all their friends present. They celebrated and they looked good doing it. And then here I was stuck at the singles table feeling pretty sorry for myself. And if those weddings weren't enough, I have to admit that I got even more jealous when they started doing the stuff that we were taught to do, buying condos that they then flipped into homes in the nice part of town, having smart and athletic kids with names that rhyme with Aiden, buying Toyotas that then became Teslas, moving up in their workplaces to become managers and then directors, and so on and so forth. Now, no one would ever say that this is a representation of a perfect life, least of all those who are living it. But there's a tremendous amount of pressure applied by living in those streams where the currents carry people in that direction. To do or be anything different is a lot like swimming upstream against masses of other salmon following their primeval urge to spawn and die. But here's the hopeful thing about analyzing these representations. It's that once you see it, it doesn't quite have the same power it did when it was a largely unconscious or subconscious process. Some of my clients openly ask me about what the point of insight is. And this is it. That when we come to a greater understanding of what's going on down below, whatever stuff is down there has less of a hold on us than it did before. Otherwise, we keep our unconscious motives and defenses in the driver's seat. 
Not that having insight into ourselves will ultimately solve everything, but at least we'll get the drive once in a while. The second question to ask ourselves is, how important or how weighty are each of these influences? It may sound a little cliched, but sometimes writing down your self-examinations and seeing them laid out on paper takes some of the power of the seductiveness away from them. For example, I'm not a car guy, but sometimes I wonder how it might be uh, to have a really nice car. But the moment I write that down or say that out loud, the absurdity of it makes it seem like a much less worthy goal. Why would I need one? To signify that I'm wealthy or powerful? To show that I know how to play the game? I don't pretend to know the mind of luxury car owners, but I'd be willing to wager that a good deal more of them might not buy the cars they do if they saw in black and white that their motives were to give off the vibe that they're more important than they really are. My wife and I have an inside joke every time I see some dude tearing down the road in an expensive sports car, his muffler all tuned up to make you turn your head as he passes. I say, wow, that guy must have a huge penis. She laughs every time. And what this does is two things. One, it reduces whatever need we may feel to show off for the sake of looking as though we're winning the game. And two, it ridicules displays of power. And if there's one thing that arrogant and overweening power cannot stand, it is laughter. So when it comes to examining ourselves and weighing how much each influence counts with us, it's important to remember that whatever we see may diminish in weight the moment we see it. We may see in ourselves the desire for more power and more privilege, but the moment we see it clearly may also be the moment it means less to us to have it. The net effect is that when we take the time to examine our impulses, we may find ourselves with a whole new set of things that matter to us. And, I'm willing to bet, this may be just fine for a lot of us. How to deal with a bunch of reset impulses is something else, but if you're looking for change, there is a lot to work with in a more level playing field. The third thing is to examine how much allowing one influence or another might affect our view of our futures. This means even after we assign weights to the various influences in our lives, it's worth our time to think through how following each of these might change what happens next. For example, say that you decide that ultimately what you want is to be comfortable in retirement. This means different things to different people, but say for you it's a mortgage-free home, and enough money to pay for essentials, as well as eating out and maybe a yearly vacation or two. Well, that means you're going to need money for that. How much money depends on how much house you want in the present, how much dining out you want to do, and how much and where vacationing you want to do. You need to establish for yourself what comfort means in your advanced age. And if you want to retire young, then you're going to need a lot of money more quickly. If that's your value for your life, then you'll need to decide early on that you'll pursue certain things, namely money. And there aren't a ton of things that will allow you to do that. It likely means that if you do go to university, you choose only certain subjects and courses, not necessarily things that are interesting to you. And then, it means excelling in school, if you do go, 
and then only choosing the highest paying offers or organ largest organizations once you graduate. And then it means working hard and sucking up a lot to get the promotions you'll need. And then you'll need to invest your earnings wisely so that you do end up with the money you need for that life you want at the age you want to stop working. But hear this, getting all that doesn't mean you'll enjoy what you have. Work is hard. And if you work in an industry for which you don't have much interest or passion, it's liable to burn you out more quickly with effects that last a lifetime. And very often, in the name of hustling and making it, we don't count the effects that the hustle can have on our relationships with our families and friends. Ambition is poisonous when it's tied to a cultural narrative on what success is supposed to look and feel like. So how do we militate against these really heavy cultural narratives? Well, maybe one way is to take seriously the idea of narrative itself. You see, the word narrative gets thrown around a lot in postmodernity because of the idea that everyone wants to tell a certain story of how things are. And so we use the word narrative because it helps us keep in mind that our story of how things are may not necessarily be the way things actually are. They're just our impressions or how we make sense of things. The people I come from generally don't like the idea of narrative because it makes things less clear. Most of my peers rather like black and white or right and wrong dichotomies because it takes a lot less cognitive energy to engage with both and and yes and no. But if we are able to engage in a little more free thinking apart from the way we were taught to think and feel, the wiggle room is to think of our lives as a story that is being told in the context of some greater stories. Some of us say that there is a much greater story going on that makes sense of our life story. And others would say that the story is what you make it. But the way to get out of the story that others want to tell of your life is to take stock of what is important to you, your values, and then to make considered and careful decisions that reflect those values. Doing whatever you feel like or whatever you've been told to do is a capitulation to a narrative someone else wants to tell about your life. The first, that doing whatever you feel like is a surrender in some ways, is that this is a surrender to your view of the world and how you currently feel about it. I won't make more comment on how fleeting our feelings can be, because that's maybe another whole episode in itself. Suffice to say that feeling strongly about something is only the beginning of sustained action in a particular direction, even if our feelings fail us and we don't want to do it anymore. The second that you're just going with the flow, is that you're just ducking conflict by going along with the prevailing opinion. But the thing about perceiving your life as an ongoing story is that stories are malleable. They can change. The best books I have read and keep on rereading are those where the characters make hard choices to go in a certain direction. Think Frodo and his choosing to take the ring to Mordor. Think Harry Potter and his searching for the Horcruxes. And for you, making a good decision means to take stock of all the various influences on your life, their weights, and to think through how following one or another might change how life looks for you. With respect to relationships, especially with family that may not approve of one thing or another, we need to consider how much living at peace with conflict over certain choices we will make will affect our lives. So, 
If it means pursuing certain careers or relationships, maybe we need to grapple with the idea that we won't get what we want, namely, that everyone is happy with us and for us. And in so doing, maybe that frees us just a little bit. The other side of it, though, is that if we don't make decisions that may be hard for loved ones to handle, we may actually be robbing them of the opportunity to grow. Maybe they need to feel what they feel based on your decisions, because that's what will help them become more mature in the end. I know it sounds weird to say become mature about people like our parents, but now that I've been a dad for a while, the truth is that all parents are still learning as we go. I've never done anything as challenging as being a dad, especially being a dad who examines what he's doing and why he's doing it. I think I've said it before, but being a parent is to be invited to constant humility because you're not going to get it right all the time. And that's okay, because that's what growth is like. And as my kids get older and I'm having to adjust the way I parent them, I'm constantly having to grow along with them, which speaks to how much maturing I need to do. Now, your parents and your elders are probably the same way, even if they deny it. They still need to grow into the maturity of their age. So that's it. First, recognize the influences in your life. Second, assign weights to these influences, recognizing that these levels will change the moment you do. And third, think through and imagine how pursuing life according to these influences will look. And I might say, fourth, Take note of how this makes you feel, because this is a good indicator of whether this is something you really want. I realize that this is an incredibly complex topic that I've tried to break down into three or four <laughs> easy steps. But no, of course these aren't easy. There's a reason why people go to therapy, and it's to work on these kinds of things. And what makes examining your life story and decisions you have to make easier is the work that therapists do. Build up your courage, empower you to live according to your principles, and offer support and encouragement to you as you go. Ultimately, it's a long journey from discontentment with the way things are going to feeling able to make decisions to grow into someone new. Maybe hearing this episode makes the thought of change a possibility on the horizon. And though it's not where you want to be, the mere appearance of a possibility is the location of a destination. And as such, it's a good place to start. This has been the Eastgate Project Podcast. My name is Ed Ng. Thank you for listening.